one body as your body. Use us, Father, your tools. We want to see you move. Give us your eyes that we can see you, God. And we, we may join you in your work. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the price that was paid for each and every one of us. We love you today, Lord. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It is so good to be with you. I sure do love you and I count it a joy and a privilege to come and share the Lord's word with you today. Join me. We're going to be in two places. We'll, we'll kick off in John chapter 17. And then we'll kind of go out from there into what we'll cover in the book of Galatians. And so if you'll be joining me there, that would just be a joy for all of us to be in the Lord's Word together. Um, I want to I just first off thank you for some things because of your diligence. We shared with you the financial need that we had back in March and just want to give you thanks and praise God for how you responded to that. We kind of asked for several things. We asked that um, you would give a very good sacrificial offering toward the need that we had. We asked that if you were not giving, maybe you would consider being a regular giver, a tither. And we also asked that if you were a regular tither, you would even consider kind of jumping in and giving one extra week's worth of tithe per month for March, April, and May. And so I just want to tell you, because of that, we've gained over half of what we needed to gain to get back in the place we would like to be. But I want to encourage you to continue to do what you're doing because the most expensive months in the life of our church are typically May and June and July because it's when we have the most activity going on that involves outflow, children's camp, Bible school, youth camp, other ministries that we do in outreach, as well as mission trips that we do. And so I want to encourage you through the summer. One of the things that happens in uh, churches during the summer is a lot of folks don't attend, and they kind of think of it like going to the movie. If I don't go to the movie, I'm not paying. And so they don't attend during the summer because they're on vacation. They think, well, I'm not going to give. And so I want to encourage you during the summer to do what you've been so good at is generosity and faithfulness. And you've already also responded to sponsoring our youth for their summer trip, and I'm so thankful of that. And you'll be hearing more about that as Steve shares in the coming weeks. John 17, and I want to... I gave you a big sheet of paper so that on the back you could do some drawing, as we've done in the last few weeks. So let's kick off. Lynn, give me the first slide, please, sir. Um, When we read John 17, and Jesus has this great, big, wonderful, high priestly prayer that we call it. This is really the Lord's Prayer. The other one is like the model prayer. But this is is the Lord's Prayer. He's going to die, and this is the last specific thing he asks for for the church Prior to that moment in the garden when he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but but thy will be done. And then on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So here's Jesus in this very deep, very beautiful prayer. And he's asking toward some specific temporal ends. That means things to happen on this side of eternity. He's asking for some things that happen in eternity too, but we're focusing on these two particular things that he says in John 17. He says, I want some things to happen in order that the world may believe you sent me and that the world may know that you sent me. Part of the church's understanding is that everything that we're doing all the time as the church is operating under this statement, for God so loved the world. And the reason that the church is still in the world is because for God so loved the world. We know how that John 3.16 passage works out, for God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that, but that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story of how 
magnificent God's love is. And then he gives the church the task of bringing the believability of his love to the world. So that the world may do these two things. Believe and know that God sent Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave. So that God's love for the world is given through Jesus. But it is demonstrated and made tangible as a testimony by the church. So the church is still in the world today to carry out the ministry, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So the world has a testimony in front of them today of the church. Now, Jesus said something's got to happen for that. Help me out, Lynn. Something has to point to or lead to that. Something has to cause that to happen. Well, Jesus said, here's what it is. It's a thing called unity. Look in John 17 with me at how unity is tied to belief and how unity is tied to knowing. Let's look at these verses together. Jesus says in verse 23 of John 17, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. So unity is the testimony of the veracity of the truth of, of the power of the gospel that displays to the world the reality that God sent Jesus. And he says it again in verse 21. What does he say? That they may all be one. Who's they? The disciples, the believers. Even as you, Father, are, are in me and I'm in you, and that they may be in us, that the world may believe. So the predecessor for believing and knowing, for the world to go, well, that's for real, is a miraculous event that occurs in the life of people called believers. And this miraculous event is the unifying of believers around the person and work of Jesus Christ in a place called the church. Not a building, but a body. And that that unity testifies to the world that it's a true story that God sent Jesus. That he, in love, came to save. And so we give a believable, a tangible, um, an understandable display of the power of God changing the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and bringing them to love each other in unity. And so a necessary precursor to the belief and the knowledge is the unity. But Jesus didn't pray for the unity. He prayed that something else would create unity. We talked about it over the last two weeks. What were those things? Well, first, salvation. Father, keep them in thy name and keep them from the evil one. That's verse 11 and verse uh, 15. I almost said 13. Verse 15. 11 and 15. And so salvation is God grabbing hold of you through the gospel, through the power of the testimony of the church, bringing the word of God to the lost so that the lost can see tangibly the unity of the church and hear the gospel message and lay hold of and believe. But Jesus said something else is necessary for that unity, a thing called sanctification. That sanctification that leads to unity It's found in verse 17. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So what's happening here? God's end game in this era, in time, before eternity, is that these people he loves so much can see visibly evidence of, of what the Bible says about God and about Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that the world could see that in the unity 
of the church. Human beings empowered by God to love each other with the love of Christ, to lay down their lives for each other, to serve one another, to forgive one another, to be long-suffering with one another. That inside that thing, that body called the church, is a group of people operating in such love that the world looks at it and says, that looks legit to me. But that is only created when in the church two things are true. A group of people who are truly saved. The reason some folks don't get along in church is they don't know Jesus. That's a problem. And they try to fit in. They try to make it happen. But it's just not happening because they don't know Jesus. But there is also a problem when someone who does know Jesus has slowed the progress of becoming like Jesus. Remember, we defined sanctification last week as being conformed to the likeness of or the image of Christ. And some folks break up the unity because they stop the process of sanctification through sinful unwillingness to obey the Word of God. And so that creates problems. And so Jesus is praying for salvation. He's praying for sanctification. Now, I want you to think this through logically with me so that you can see where Satan puts his work. Let's kind of come up with a different illustration. Lynn, help me out. Let's say that you have a dying child. There's a mom and there's a dad. They're in a house. They're alone. There's nobody else there. They have no other communication. They don't have anybody that they can call. And they have a dying child. And that child can be helped. Something can help that child. Something can make it well. And that is medicine. That there's a medicine That this child has an infection. The infection is going to take the child's life. But there is a medicine, and if that child gets the medicine, then the child will be made well. But some something has to happen. One more time, Lynn. Somebody's got to go to the pharmacy to get the medicine. So the, the dad's going to leave the child with the mom. He's going to go to the pharmacy to get the medicine to make the child well. The end game is for the child to be well. Two things that have to happen for the child to be well is the child has to have the medicine and somebody has to bring the medicine. Now, if you were evil and you wanted to kill that child, what would you do? Where would you focus your energy if you were evil and you wanted to kill the child? Well, the child's already sick. You don't have to fool with the child. You don't have to fool with the child at all. If you were evil and you wanted the child to die, what would you do? Well, where would you put your energy? Well, help me out, Lynn. You'd put your energy in one of these two places. You'd say, I've got to deal with one of two things. I've got to either keep the medicine from being at the pharmacy or I've got to keep the person from going to the pharmacy. So if I was evil and I wanted to destroy the child, here's what I would do. I don't have to fool with the child. The child's sick and dying. I don't put any energy on that. Where do I have to put my energy? I have to put my energy on stage two or stage one. I either got to deal with the medicine or I got to deal with the person who's going to bring it. Now, let's pull that into the gospel. If I'm the devil and I want the world not to believe in Jesus. I don't have to fool with the world at all. They're already sick and they're already dying. The Bible says that the world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan doesn't have to put his energy into lost people. He doesn't have to fool with them. Now, I'm not saying he never fools with them or never has anything to do with them. But where does he have to put the energy if he wants to shut the gospel down? He doesn't have to put it on the sick and dying. There's two billion people on this earth right now that have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know how much work Satan has to do to keep them from knowing? He doesn't have to fool with them at all. He's got to fool with the people that would bring them the medicine. So where is Satan going to put his energy? 
He's going to work against the unity of the church. Because, listen, when we're busy fighting each other, I promise you, we don't have time to fight the devil. He just puts a whooping on us. When division is among us, all Satan does is sit back and say, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Two billion people are dying and going to hell. Fight on. Fight on. And so what do we do? We fight. We waste our time and we waste our energy fighting each other, criticizing each other, gossiping about each other, tearing each other down. That's what we do. And Satan doesn't have to fool with the lost people. He just keeps messing with you. And he stays after it. And he fights against unity. And then he fights against what creates unity. He fights against sanctification and salvation. You see, the two billion, he can just leave them alone to die. And all he wants you to do is join him in leaving them alone to die. And so when you get busy breaking down unity, you're just joining the devil. When you fight sanctification... You're just joining the devil. When you are playing church and you're really lost, you're just working for the devil. And what does he do? There's two billion people in this world right now that will perish. Some of them perished in the earthquake this weekend. Some of them perished in Nepal, in Tibet. Some of them perished in India. And they didn't bother us at all. The fact that they were lost was not on our mind Thursday before the earthquake. I got ball to play. I got stuff to do. I got a life to live. I can't be bothered with all that. And so the, the result is that Satan is focusing his energy to simply break the church down. Bringing people in to church who are not saved, who are playing the game. Holding people back who are not obeying the will of God, yet they're saved, but they're not surrendered and they're not being sanctified. And then using those things to just create between us all kinds of fracture. Listen, we've got a lot of work to do in central Louisiana to make up for the mess that happened just at Louisiana College. Our whole community stepped back and said, if that's Christianity, if that's Christianity, no, I don't think so. I don't think I need that. Listen, most folks have enough drama in their life already. They don't need to come to church to purchase any. And so, what we want to look at today is how, how easy it is, listen, for even mature believers to fall in this trap. Let's look together. Galatians chapter 2. Those of you who joined us at Secret Church Friday night, we had about 24 make it all the way to 1 a.m. for the end. That was, it was great. Um, you were encouraged wonderfully by what the Lord was doing through David Platt, the new president of the IMB. I'm really thankful for him. Okay, Lynn, let's go. By the way, a lot of folks behind the scenes get a lot of stuff done. When Lynn got my presentation this morning, it was totally messed up, and he had to rewrite all of this presentation before church today. Because something happened as it was saved and sent. Something, I think that has something to do with the church. Because something happens to us when we're saved and sent. Man, it just doesn't get there right. So, uh, thank you, Lynn. Here's the beginning. When we look at Jesus' prayer, we need to understand that it has some impact that's going on in Galatians. And here's what I want you to know first. First, God so loved the world that he enables us to see the danger of conflict and division, even among mature believers. So God preserved for us in the book of Galatians a fight. That happened in the early church. And he made sure that that fight got to us in print, in Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we would look at it and contemplate and go, hey, maturity is no barrier to disunity. And so here, verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, and this is Cephas, this is Peter he's speaking of, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There was a great big fracture in the church on that day. And it had the potential for long-term disaster. 
something happened that caused conflict in the church and the Lord has brought it to us so we can look at it and note that your maturity does not guarantee that you're not going to fall out with somebody. And your maturity is not a guarantee you're not going to get off track and need to be corrected by other believers. Here is something I want you to take home. When you get to the place that you can't be corrected, you are ineffective. Just take it home. Here's Peter, and he is about to be publicly corrected in front of everybody. If you get to the place where you can't be corrected, you will be ineffective. So here, Cephas says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter openly sinned in front of everybody. And the reason that Paul uses this strong language, stood condemned, is a phrase that means to be in court and be guilty and the sentence to be rendered. It's when the judge says, you're guilty. And so Peter is standing in front of these people and he's just as guilty as the day is long. He is guilty. And what's he guilty of? Well, verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want you to realize, kind of think about church history, and later, if you'll mark down real quick that it would be good for you to go back and read Acts 15 and all of Galatians 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 for a later study. Acts 15. I don't have time to lay all of that out for you, but here's basically what happened. When the Gentiles came to Christ, a section of so-called believers who came from a background of being Pharisees came into the church and said, you can't be saved if you are not circumcised and if you are not going to obey the law of Moses. And so that caused a big fracture in the church. Well, those people came from a very strong Jewish tradition, and some of those people had infiltrated this group who came from James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. And James was kind of an elder, kind of an overseer, an apostle. And as a leader, he had a lot of guys around him, had a Jewish background, and they thought very strongly about the law. And they had this big discussion, and they'd settled it all, and... Then these guys come up to Antioch to visit Paul and Peter and Barnabas and the converts from the Jews and the converts from the Gentiles. So you've got an ethnic mix, you've got a cultural mix, you've got a socioeconomic mix, you've got just a, a range of people there who've come to Christ. And some guys from Jerusalem, from James, show up and they don't like the ethnic mix. They don't like the cultural mix. They don't like to eat with Gentiles. They don't like that. And so here they show up, and Peter responds to their arrival. And what does it say? He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw. So let's go to number two. God so loved the world that he enables us to know the cause of conflict and division, even among mature believers. I'm going to share something with you here in just a moment that infects every one of us, and it infects us so powerfully that it can take over at any moment that we yield to it. What is it? It's this. It's called selfishness. I don't care how mature you have ever become in Christ, how many years you've served, what capacity you've served, This can rear its head and take over your life at any given moment. It will sneak up on you, and when it does, it will take over, and it will even subvert your character, subvert your sanctification. In fact, it will make you question your salvation. It's so strong so powerful and so deeply woven in our flesh 
And it shows up at inopportune times. And so Satan, knowing the potential of selfishness in any one of us, is always seeking an angle to reveal our selfishness. He's always looking for it. He's always searching for it. And one of the angles that he uses here is our cultural and ethnic preference. We all have them. We all have cultural and ethnic preferences. We battle with them every day. We notice them all kinds of times. They're there. And sometimes they don't matter. Then Satan will sneak up and he will use those preferences and the selfishness behind them to cause division. And so, here's the simple cause. It's selfishness. Peter wanted he wanted the praise of his cultural and ethnic relatives he wanted their praise he wanted their approval he wanted something that would soothe his flesh and make him feel good about himself and here he goes the these Judaizers come from James. They show up and Peter begins to kind of ease away from those who are culturally and ethnically and socioeconomically different. And he goes and he moves tables and he tries to do it in a kind of a sly way. Let me catch up with my old friends here. And he moves over and all of a sudden it goes through the church. So listen when conflict comes to the church, Satan's angle is always to go to your flesh and appeal to your selfishness. Here's what he wants you to say to yourself. Well, I deserve to be happy. He does. He wants you to, he wants you to say that to yourself. He's, he's just fishing around for the minute when you can justify some sinful behavior by saying... I just deserve yet I just deserve to be comfortable. I really do. I deserve to be comfortable. I deserve to be free of danger. Satan will sneak into your selfishness and he will provoke it. It'll bust up your marriage, it'll bust up your relationship with your kids, your parents, it'll bust up your church, it'll bust up your neighborhood selfishness. And Satan uses that and leverages it to do his work. Now, you would think that Peter would be immune to this. I mean, he, he, spent, he spent three years with Jesus. He's been an apostle. He's been preaching all this time. I mean, he's the guy who made first contact kind of with the Gentiles when he went to Cornelius's. He even got the vision of the stuff coming down from heaven. Where it had all these creeping things and the Lord said, Peter, arise and kill and eat. Oh no, Lord, I couldn't eat anything. Anything that's not clean. What I have made clean, do not refuse. Yes, Lord. So Peter's not just mature. He'd had a vision from Jesus himself. But that did not stop him from a moment of selfishness that changed him. And caused him to be compelled towards something very unhealthy. So where's Satan aiming? Is he aiming out there at all those lost Gentiles that Paul's going to reach? He's already got them. He's firing at the church. And the sanctification that ought to have brought Peter to the place that day where he was surrendered to Christ, but he wasn't. And so here's what happens. Number three, God so loved the world that he enables us to be aware of the contagious effect caused by conflict and division, especially among mature believers. Listen carefully. There are people following your lead. They're your children. They're your family. They're your friends. They're following your lead. Peter takes the lead. What happens? Read the word of the Lord here. What happens? It says in verse 
12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. There are people following your lead. And nothing can be done in the church that is not done contagiously. You are influencing people by all your activity. And God loves the world so much that He is not going to let you sit there in that. Just as He was not going to let Peter sit there in it. And so, this contagious effect kind of breaks itself down into three ways. So let's, let's get those real quick. Help me out, Lynn. Three ways sin always affects its surroundings. You can just mark this. Number one, letter A. Sin separates us. Satan's angle in selfishness is separation. Satan seeks separation of saints through selfishness. That's what he's after. He's trying to break up your family. He's trying to break up your your friends, he's trying to break up your influence, he's trying to break up your church, and he is fervently seeking that all the time. He uses our tongues, he uses our attitudes, he uses our anger. Last week we saw he uses our bitterness, he uses our temptation, he uses whatever he can, sin always separates. It breaks us up. But it doesn't just separate, it also segregates. It causes us to be drawn to people who like or defend the same sins. That's why we have a, a homosexual Baptist church now. Why? Because it segregated out a section of people who are drawn together liking the same sin. That's why churches are white and black. Because God has segregated us by our selfishness of having preferences about music and style that doesn't matter to Jesus. So Satan's working to separate saints through sin. To segregate saints through sin. Finally, to saturate saints with sin. See, your influence can't be contained. Several years ago, Sherry and I were living in a house in Natchez, and we bought it. It was an old house. It was built in the 40s. Many of you actually came and helped us finish that house before we moved here. We lived in it for three years. It was an ongoing renovation. It, was, it would have been a great thing you could have filmed for one of these television shows. It was pretty crazy. But we lived in this renovation for three years, and while we were in the process of it, uh, one day we came in the kitchen, and the kitchen floor was buckled. I mean, it was just wavy buckled like this. And I said, oh, man, what is going on here? And so we began to dig around and investigate, and there was this little leak under my dishwasher. And it had just dripped, and it had dripped, and it had dripped, and it had dripped. And then what had happened is it had wicked through the, the plywood and the particle board that was all under there. It had gone under all the cabinets, under all the flooring, so that when it finally showed up, it just buckled everything, and it was hard. We had to pull all the cabinets out, and we had to rip everything out because it had just seeped through everything. Here's what sin does. It saturates. It invades. It wicks itself into the lives of the people around us. And it breaks them down and buckles them up. Satan wants to impurify others through your impurity. And he's working at it. He wants to take your anger. He wants to take your bitterness. He wants to take your immorality. He wants to take your fetishes. He wants to take your inclinations. And He wants to take those and He wants to taint those around you by separating, segregating, and saturating. And here, this whole 
church in Antioch is suddenly saturated, segregated, and separated, and Paul has to stand up and look at Peter face on, nose to nose, eye to eye, and say, you are wrong. The role of the church in correcting herself is the willingness of every one of us to look nose to nose with any one of us and say, you are disobeying the Word of God. And it is saturating the people around you. It is segregating people. What happens? Look at, what, look at the word he uses here. In the verse 12, fearing the party of the circumcision. In other words, the church is already divided up in parties. They're, they're coalitions. Y'all come on my side. Let's join together against their side. Let's all get together against so-and-so. Do you know what such-and-such did? Let's all get together and do something about it. And all of a sudden, coalitions start forming around problems and people and sin, saturating, and it starts breaking churches up. My brothers and sisters, if it happened in Galatians in the early years of the church, how much more so do we look at the whole globe of Christianity today and see all the fractures. Even our own church, our own school, our own community. Here, it's a contagious effect. I've got to hustle. I'm over time. But I wanted, I wanted to get that part down. Here we go. Number four. God so loved the world that He enables us to understand the cost caused by conflict and division, especially among mature believers. Now, here's what it comes down to. It's not just about the fight. It's not just about the the fracture. It's not just about the party or the difficulty or who's sitting with who. That's not it. That's not why Paul is so upset. Paul is upset in verse 14. Join me there. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth, and here you go, Lynn, put it up, about the gospel. Unity is a gospel issue. Sanctification is a gospel issue. Our ability to communicate the gospel is broken, is ravaged, is damaged by disunity. And Paul says, here's what's happening in your disunity. You're not straightforward about the gospel. You say, well, what's the big deal here? I want to take you to the big deal. It's in chapter 2. It's a little earlier. It's in verse 5. And I want you to process who you are and where you are in light of this. Verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection. This is when the big argument came over the gospel. We did not yield in subjection to them even for an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. What does that mean? The issue at hand was whether or not the Gentiles were going to get the gospel. How many Gentiles do we have here today? How many Gentiles do we have here today? Come on, come on, come on. If you're a Gentile, put your hand up. If you're not Jewish by birth, put your hand up. Do you know what was at stake here today? Whether or not you got saved. That's what was at stake in their conversation. Because if the church fractured at this point, the Gentiles would have been left out. And the gospel would have only gone to the Jews. And you're saved today partly because Paul got up in Peter's face and said, you're sinning. Now listen carefully. Somebody needs to be saved tomorrow. And if we don't heal the fractures in our midst in central Louisiana, the gospel might not get to them because we're so busy fighting each other. Now, Paul didn't want you to die and go to hell. He really didn't. He's plain about it. You can see it all through the New Testament. But he wants you to have that same heartbeat in your heart today. That you don't want your neighbors or your friends or your children that are unsaved. You don't want them to die to go to hell. You don't want these two billion that don't have the gospel to die and go to hell. So here's what we do. We have to say, what's the cure here? So i got to hustle. The cost is the gospel. Number five, here's the cure. You say, okay, Pastor Bart, how do we fix this? You want to know, but you really don't want to know. Can I tell you that? You want to know, don't you? Don't you want to know? So how do we fix this? But I promise you when I tell you, you don't want to know. 
Because it will cost you everything. See, here's how Paul brings the cure. For years, how many of you have read through the book of Galatians? Yeah, most of you read through the Bible, read through the book of Galatians, yeah. For years, I've read through the book of Galatians. I've preached the book of Galatians. I don't think I've ever preached it as a whole book, but I've preached all kinds of passages. I never realized that Galatians... Look, look in your Bible real quick. And this is what absolutely smacked me this week. I never realized that in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, when the quotes begin. You see the quotes before the word if in chapter 2, verse 14. If you... He's talking to Peter. If you, do you realize those quotes don't close until verse 21? That what Paul does is he tells Peter how to get back to where he needs to be. And that Galatians 2, starting in the opening of the quotes, if you, there in that verse, was it 14 I said? Was it 14? Help me. Yeah, it's 14. And he's talking to Peter. He's not talking to the Galatians. I mean, he is talking to the Galatians, but he's talking to Peter. And he says, Peter, do you want to know how to get back to where you need to be? Do you want to know? Here's how. And what does he do? The first thing he does is he clarifies what the gospel really is. My brothers and sisters, there's not a day of the week that we don't need to get up and clarify what the gospel is. We need to get up and we need to rehearse. What is the gospel? He says it right there. Verse 15. We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. What's he saying? He's saying if you're wanting to get saved based on what you're doing, you can't. You have to get saved based on what Jesus did. You have to settle that. Peter, improving your diet plan and staying away from uncircumcised people is not going to have anything to do with your salvation. You better get this gospel thing settled. So he clarifies the gospel, but then he gives three gospel ramifications I want you to take home and I want you to chew on because I know we want to know them, but my brothers and sisters, the truth is the reason we struggle is we don't want to know them. Here they are. Number one, the first thing, we must be killed with Jesus. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. You want to be sanctified and have unity? You've got to be killed with Jesus. You cannot live to yourself anymore. Paul put it in Philippians. He said, I die daily. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It means that every time the Word of God is spoken to you, you immediately, whether it's in private by the Spirit or by your quiet time or when the pastor preaches or when the Sunday school teacher shares or when a friend speaks the Word of God to you, crucified means that moment you submit to what God says. That moment. We, we studied it in Experiencing God. It was back here when we were on page 40. We were on Unit 2, Day 3. And it was about Mueller, George Mueller and his prayer time. And listen to the crucified life of George Mueller. He says, I seek at the beginning, talking about his quiet time with God. I seek at the beginning, about any time he's making a decision. I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. That's crucified with Christ. That means you approach God without your will, looking for His. Not asking Him to justify your will and your want. But abolishing your will, crucifying your will, crucifying your flesh, and going to God and saying, Not what I will, but Thy will be done. If we are going to have unity and be sanctified and demonstrate true salvation, we must be killed with Jesus. We are buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and be alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6. 
all over the Bible is a call to a crucified life. Paul said, I have been, read it with me, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. There is no unity in an uncrucified life. There is no gospel effectiveness in an uncrucified life. I said you wanted to know, but you didn't want to know. This means we die to ourselves. Our desires, our designs, we die to that. Something else has to happen. We must be filled with Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. He's not making zombies. He's not trying to have a bunch of dead corpses laying around the church do nothing. When we truly are crucified with Christ, when we are killed with Christ, only then will we be filled with Christ. Some of you have seen those bumper stickers along the way. God is my co-pilot. Listen, if God's your co-pilot, you better change seats. God's not co-anything. He is king. And He's not asking to help you operate your life. He's calling you to die to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is a person who will be killed with Jesus. But that's not enough. We must be filled with Jesus and we must be thrilled with Jesus. What does He say? Listen to how He unfolds it. He says... I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. All that thrills my soul, Lynn, pull it up for me. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of ten thousand. In my blessed Lord. Listen, do you know why Paul so easily enjoyed the killed life? Do you know why he so well embraced the filled life? Because he had tasted. He had tasted the thrilled life. And he knew. He knew what it was like to be pleasing to Jesus. And that was his heartbeat. He's the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord, I say. All that thrills my soul. I want to show you a video right now that I want you to be compelled by. Bring that up for me, Lynn. Every preacher in the pulpit, every cynic on the street, every poet, every pauper, every traitor, every thief, every soldier, every lawyer, every TV talk show star, anybody teaching students, anybody tending bar, God so loved the God so loved the world Every judge and every jailer Every master, every slave Every rebel, every skeptic Every addict in their chains All the powerful and pretty
another wasted day. Not another wasted minute. But that the church of God would rise up under the gospel of Christ and love one another and take the message to the nations and take the message to our neighbors. God so loved the world. Stand with me. Oh, Father. Compel us this morning to be thrilled with Jesus. If we've lost our zeal, our first love, whatever it is that we came in today lacking, Lord, do a work in us today. Do an incredible, supernatural, gospel-sized work.